Welcome to Red, White, and Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans. So this week, we're actually going to continue talking a little bit about Appalachia and politics. And in particular, last week um, in in my Congress class, we had a special visitor come chat with us about, well, how he sees the region and politics here. Um, you may recognize the name Silas House. So Silas House is the nationally best-selling author of the novels Clay's Quilt, A Parchment of Leaves, The Coal Tattoo, Eli the Good, and Same Son Here, and Southernmost, as well as a book of creative nonfiction, Something's Rising, co-authored with Jason Howard in 2009, and three plays. <laughs> so he's very busy. And he actually just released his new novel, Lark Ascending, in September. But Silas was very nice in visiting with my class last week. And we wanted to share, I wanted to share that conversation with all of you, or pieces of that conversation with all of you. Because we get into um, the most recent election, the 2022 election, kind of the the attitudes of the region and how we we see change happening here, if we see change happening here. And two of my students, um, Trey Stidham, you may remember Trey from last week's uh, broadcast, as well as Kelly Parks, asked some great questions of Silas. And so I wanted to share this recording with you, pieces of this recording with you. So you'll get to hear us talk a little bit about Kentucky politics, Appalachian politics, J.D. Vance, And, you know, I end up asking him whether he's ever going to run for office. So I hope you enjoy uh, today's today's show. So in the in the summertime and and in the uh, early fall, with the flooding that hit um, eastern Kentucky and also hit here, I was frustrated with government responses to that and um, also comments and things I saw online. And I know you. you were also frustrated. I saw many of your tweets and, and other posts on social media and articles where you were frustrated about that. Um, so I guess my first question is actually about things like natural disasters that are occurring in Appalachia. What do you think, I mean, how do you feel about the political response to these things and what, what can politicians do better? to help with Appalachia, the the problems in Appalachia and the the disasters that we've been having in Appalachia? Well, it's hard to talk about, first of all. Lots of times in Appalachia, we want to blame everybody else. And we put a lot of blame on politicians, but we're the ones that put the politicians in office. And so I'm pretty frustrated right now with the way Appalachia votes. Um, I think we vote against our own best interest. Um, and I don't understand it. I, you know, just like yesterday or Tuesday, <clears throat> Kentucky voted Rand Paul back in. Rand Paul has exhibited nothing but hatred for the people of Kentucky. He's voted against our veterans. He's voted against emergency responders. Um, he is terrible Uh, He's absolutely awful to LGBTQ people, to women, to people of color, to immigrants. I don't know why anybody in the state of Kentucky has voted for him. I don't know anybody in Kentucky who can tell me something that their life is better because of Rand Paul. 
but we keep putting him in. Now, a lot of people gatekeep in Appalachia. What I mean by that is when you're from a place that you're constantly having, you constantly have people tell you how awful you and your people are. And you know that's not true. You want to defend the place. You know, you want to say, no, there are lots of good people here. There's lots of good work being done here, et cetera. But sometimes that goes into us defending the un, the indefensible, people who are voting based on hatred and vitriol and racism and homophobia and transphobia. So that's what I mean. It's just so complicated, you know, and... um so, you know, I had a lot of people that would have responded to me yesterday and they're saying, well, Rand Paul keeps getting in Kentucky because of gerrymandering. Gerrymandering doesn't matter in a Senate race. Gerrymandering does matter in local races. And yes, it disenfranchises voters and it de-incentivizes vo voters. But we can't blame everything on gerrymandering. People also blame it on voter suppression. Well, I'm sorry, but white people in eastern Kentucky are not, their vote is not being suppressed. That There's just no evidence of that. And um, so it goes down to why are people voting this way? I think a lot of it is tied up in the culture wars. A lot of pastors and churches throughout the region tell their congregants, you know, if you don't vote for this person, then you're going to go to hell. And you're doing wrong and you're sinning and things like that. Um, first of all, a pastor shouldn't be saying that from the pulpit because churches aren't taxed. And that's, a, you know, if they want to get taxed, that's one way to end up getting taxed is to keep doing that. But, you know, I have been all over the world as a writer and everywhere I go. I mean, I was in Scotland a couple of years ago. And the very first question during my Q&A was, why do you all keep putting Mitch McConnell in office? I wish I knew the answer to that because I don't know any Kentuckian who feels like Mitch McConnell has done something for them, but we keep putting him in office. Now, one, I think one thing that makes some sense to me is growing up in a place where you feel so powerless, you feel like you have so little power and you see the whole media constantly negate who you are as a people. You travel places and people openly, you know, sometimes people say, where are you from? And I'll say Eastern Kentucky. And they'll say, oh, I'm sorry. Like, that's funny. You know, they think that's a joke. And they expect me to laugh at that. I don't laugh at that. It makes me mad as hell when they say that. And so, um, but I do think that one reason, I think somehow sometimes we think, well, Mitch McConnell has power in Washington, D.C., you know, he's the he's the minority leader right now, or you know, sometimes he's been the majority leader. And that is a lot of power to wield in Washington, DC. And I think a lot of Kentuckians don't want to give that up, you know, once we have it. We don't want to give it up. Or, you know, in this most recent race, it was Rand Paul and he was running against Charles Booker, who's a black man from Louisville. He's been very involved. He, he's gone everywhere. His whole motto was from the hood to the holler. 
And it was all about, you know, drawing parallels between black working class people and white rural working class people, because we do have more similarities than differences, you know, and he really, his whole campaign was based on that. And he got a lot of traction. I mean, he got almost 600,000 votes in Kentucky. That's huge, you know, for a black man who's not the incumbent. It really worked to his advantage with some people that he was very aligned with the protest in Louisville after Breonna Taylor was killed. For a whole lot of other voters, they saw that as, you know, they see Black Lives Matter as a organization, a violent organization that is intent on defunding the police. You know, there's just so much misinformation and so much of it is semantics. So it's all real loaded. And again, I think a lot of voters thought, well, Rand Paul's been there, you know, for two terms already. And he's always in the news because, you know, he's always making sure he's in the news by doing the way he gets in the news is by, you know, instead of doing passing great legislation, instead he just picks a fight with Anthony Fauci. And then he's on every news station. And a lot of it is about name recognition. So he's really smart in that way, but he's also really ineffective, you know. And so often, you know, I'm saying to people, I'm not going to spend my time here defending why people vote for Mitch McConnell or Rand Paul, because I don't really have the answers for that. I don't really understand it. But what I do understand of it is really complicated, and it's something I can't boil down for people in a five-minute soundbite. And I especially can't do it for people who don't understand the region the way that you all understand the region. You know what I mean? And so we all understand those complexities in a way that a lot of people, they just don't have the historical and the cultural context for this. Now, the other part of this is, if you think about why Appalachians are voting so much more conservatively than they used to, because we haven't always, you know, we used to be a very blue region. Well, I, I think a lot of this started with the Clinton administration. I remember as a child, you know, even though Clinton was from the South and, you know, had a really rural accent and all that, there was this idea that he was very much aligned with the Hollywood elite and that he didn't care about rural people. We saw a lot of factories leaving rural areas during that time. And a lot of it started then, even before Obama. Well, then when Obama came in, I mean, the truth is the truth. I had a lot of people in my family who just would not, they were not going to vote for a black man. And that's all there was to it. That, that was, you know, the thing I heard over and over. So, I mean, I don't necessarily think Appalachian people are more racist than anybody else. I mean, I, I have witnessed bigotry everywhere I've ever been, no matter how big a city it is or how small a town it is. I don't think bigotry is relegated to rural people. But I do think that some of those old, sort of those old South ideas of racial segregation and stuff have hung on a a little longer in rural areas, or at least I've witnessed that personally because I'm from a rural area. So, of course, I've witnessed it more 
in a rural area than I have in other places because that's where I'm from, you know? So, of course, I notice it more. But I do think there's this idea that liberals are out of touch with rural working class issues. And I think there's some truth in that because they've sort of given up like where the money comes from when you're talking about the DNC. And I don't know how much y'all talk about stuff like that in this class, but when you're talking about the RNC and the DNC and things like that, the DNC has decided to just not put their money in these rural areas because it's going to be money wasted anyway. Well, then rural people, that chips away at the party in rural places and people are like, well, y'all just don't care about me anymore. And so why should I be on board with you and so their interests start turning now the other big part of this is media and it has played an incredible role in our lifetimes in reshaping the way rural people think about politics i mean statistically more rural people watch fox news than they do liberal news now i'm just going to give you my full up opinion here right i think that all TV media is bad. I don't watch any TV news. CNN is just as lopsided as Fox is. The problem is, though, yes, CNN has a... CNN bends more liberal and Fox bends, bends more conservative. I mean, that's obvious, right? My issue is that when I was growing up, journalism wasn't, um, it didn't have an opinion. You know, I mean, there were, yeah, there were opinion pages, but that was clearly, this is my opinion. Whereas now the news is just, we shouldn't be able to say CNN is liberal and Fox News is conservative, right? But the problem is, there's that balance, right? But for me, the problem is Fox tells lies. CNN might, you know, be they may be bent more towards liberal issues and Fox is bent more towards conservative issues, but Fox just outright shares misinformation. And that's the difference there. And more people in rural areas are watching Fox, and so they're getting more misinformation. That, that's really troubling to me, you know, because where I'm from, every doctor's office you go in, every dentist's office, every restaurant, it's Fox News. And I'm always like, can't we just watch like the Cartoon Network or something? <laughs> you know, like that when we're out in public. Why does it? Why do they put it on these news stations? Um, you know, put it on uh, a cooking channel or something. We can all agree on that, you know. So it's just stuff like that. I just think that politics has inundated every part of our lives. You, you can't go to the dentist without seeing You can't go to church without hearing about it. And it didn't used to be that way. And I think that's really troubling. And it's caused so much more divide because it's always there. Does all that make sense? Any of that make sense? It all makes sense. I mean, and we talk about all of this in class, uh, not only in this class, but in other classes that I teach too. So this class is all about Congress. So we've been following a lot of the congressional races. And as you know, now, J.D. Vance just oh, got the, I know. So um, what, what did you say? That one's really hard to take because, you know, he's, from the moment Hillbilly Elegy came out, I'm like, this isn't a memoir. This is a political treatise. And this guy's a charlatan. 
and he is he is it killed me to see so many people holding that up as a piece of Appalachian literature because he is perpetuating all the stereotypes. He's making fools out of his family. You know, he's not giving any complexity to his mother, you know, whose uh, whole life has been shaped by abuse. And um, it's just that, well, she's an awful drug addict, you know, and she's made the worst choices. And he doesn't talk about the way the culture, you know, fed, feeds that and makes that happen. It's like talking about, you know, he, he's like talking about so many people in Eastern or in Appalachia are on drugs, but he doesn't talk about the way that pharmaceutical companies have made that a reality and the way they've made it a testing ground and the way that we work more physically um, taxing jobs that leads to prescription addiction, you know, and things like that. So, yeah, I'm sorry, Interrupt. don't get me started on him, Lord. <laughs> well, and it's it's like I think about, you know, now this person is being sent to the Senate. Yeah. Is he thinking of himself as the representative from Appalachia? And I don't I, I don't think that Appalachian people view him that way. The rest of the world may be like, oh, he he's obviously Appalachia because he wrote about it, but he's not. Right. He'll be held up that way now for the next six years, at least, you know. Yeah. So there are a couple of students who have questions and I wanted to first pass it to Kelly. Okay. In your article, a warning from a Democrat in a red state, you wrote on some things that had been said to you about being a Kentuckian and people blaming you for Mitch McConnell's um, present in the Senate. You stated that maybe people were not very informed with what McConnell was doing, but you were just as busy and kept up with the news. People are very uneducated with politics, as our own results showed here from a survey we conducted through the college. How can we better inform individuals so that they can see the bigger issues and want to be properly educated in order to fix these major problems in Appalachia today? Well, I think we have a culture in Appalachia of thinking that to be too informed or too smart is to be highfalutin, is to be getting above your raisin. You know, when I went to college, my family was so proud of me for going to college, but they also held it against me. Like every argument we would get into, they'd say, oh, you think you know it all because you've been to college. And it was like this inferiority complex that they had that I wasn't thinking that way at all. Like I wasn't thinking I'm smarter than you because I've been to college and you haven't, but they felt that way. And so I think we have to change that idea that to be informed or to be educated is a is a bad thing. It's this weird paradox we have that we want people to be educated, but then we're also fearful of education. And it's deeply rooted in the past where for a long period in Appalachian history, the people who would come in and say, you need to do this things this way, this way, and this way. They were from off and they were educated and all that. And it caused this suspicion of education in us. You know, I mean, if you say, if you go around and say, oh, I'm an artist or I'm a writer, people make fun of that. And they, they think you're being conceited or whatever. Um, and it's just a cultural thing that we have to change. The other thing is people have to change that about themselves. They have to want to be informed. They have to want to be better informed. It is much simpler to not be informed. 
it is much easier to not know what all is going on in the world. I hear people all the time who say, well, I just don't even watch news anymore. It's just too hard. And I'm like, well, it must be nice, you know, to, I know ignorance is bliss, but I don't choose ignorance. And, and if they do, that's their, that's on them. And now I'm going to pass this over to Trey, who also has a question for you. So we're writing um, a paper in this class. And like Kelly said, we've had the opportunities to go out and conduct a survey. Um, and part of our survey um, asks, what do you think are the most important problems facing Southwest Virginians and facing Americans as a whole? Um, and I, my question is, do you think that our representatives, especially those representing Appalachians, really know what we care about? Um, I found in my research, I think that they don't, but I would just love to hear your opinion. And if they don't, what do you think they could do better? Well, I think they mostly know, but I don't think they care. I think they care more about the rights of corporations than they do about individuals. And one of the biggest problems we have is lobby, lobbying and the way that lobbyists have way too much control. I also think that politicians shouldn't be allowed to um, trade in stocks. And, um, you know, that's the, the money is the root of all the evil here that's going on. And there's um, too much insider knowledge for politicians and they're, they're, they're gaining too much, you know, I mean, and I think this is true of both sides. I'm not, this is not just, uh, this is not partisan. Like Nancy Pelosi, for instance, she has way too much money to be in service to the people, I think. And so um, I think this is, you know, just a, a, an issue across the board. It behooves them to do the bidding of the companies and the corporations, the businesses, more than it behooves them to do the bidding of individuals. So they're not really representing their constituents properly. They're mostly representing the business interests, the big business interests that are in these areas. And that's really been a huge problem in Appalachia, right? Because we're an extractive place. We're a place where <clears throat> for the last almost 200 years, most of our natural resources have left the area. Most of the money that is made there goes out of the area. And so, of course, the corporations are being served more than the individuals. And if you look at the whole world, wherever natural resources are really rich, the people are going to be really poor because the money leaves the area, whether that's Appalachia or Nigeria or Saudi Arabia or wherever. A 1% is going to make all the money and the rest of the people are going to be living in poverty. I'll ask the final question. And it's, it's kind of related a little bit to J.D. Vance, but not really. So the question is, would you ever run for office? Um, I couldn't run for office. I, I have too bad a temper. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we need that. Well, I can't, I, I can't control that. I mean, I was... I was raised in a rough place and my, when I get mad, I get loud and I get violent, <laughs> I mean, you know, so yeah, I don't think I would ever be able to. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, you know, 
I have been written, I have been asked two or three times to write a response to Hillbilly Elegy. And I've been offered good money to do that. And I just can't, I just can't see myself putting all that energy into, you know, into a response to him in that yeah. way. Um, I, I mean, there are times that I wish I had done that, but other times, my like, Lord, it would just be toxic for me to be talking about that for a couple of years, you know? Well, I just want to say as someone who, again, I grew up here in Southwest Virginia um, in council, little tiny town, Buchanan County. And right before Eastern Kentucky was hit with flooding, we had Whitewood, which also went under. And uh, that was the town where there were like 40 some people who were missing and no one knew. And they were all fine. Uh, so luckily, very different than Eastern Kentucky, but still hit with the flooding and all of that. And I, I just wanted to say that I really appreciated you shedding light on politics and flooding and all of that when that was happening online. Um, I really, I really appreciated how you were highlighting some of the comments you were getting about how, you know, the whole, you get what you vote for. Well, people don't necessarily vote for floods, that flooding isn't on the flooding isn't on the ballot, but as you mentioned, candidates are, and I I think we need better quality candidates. And the thing is now JD Vance is this big conservative hero, right? Who put him there? Liberals. Because liberals are the ones who embrace that book so much because they thought, oh, yeah, this is giving me a good way to explain the Trump phenomenon to people. All these stupid hillbillies. Right. <laughs> and so it's like this. It just it's so frustrating. Um, it is. It, the, it, the response to the flood so often were liberal people who would be the first people to to be, you know, defending people of color or queer people or women. They were the very ones saying, well, they voted for these people, so they deserve it. I'm sorry. Nobody deserves to drown and lose everything they've got, no matter who they vote for. That is just being void of any compassion at all, you know? Um, And so I was... Yeah, I mean, God, I was, I felt like I was on Twitter for two or three days there, just, you know, but you, you, it's an echo chamber, you know. It is. Yeah. And, and last week I had a couple scholars on to talk about rural resentment and just the rural urban divide. And his book made it worse, right? It exacerbated that. And so I, I hope that, I hope the politics gets better in Appalachia. It's going to take, some work and it's going to take the democratic organizations too coming into you know saying like yes we're going to spend time and resources on people in rural regions yeah it is and i mean i think that this new generation is thinking more complexly about these things than previous generations and one reason is because the economy has to transition we don't we don't have coal we just don't have it the way we used to so we, we're going to have to start thinking about ways to fill those voids. And a big part of that's going to be technology and, you know, digital technology and et cetera. So this new generation is, I think they're going to think very differently about, than a lot, about a lot of these issues. And there's also seems to be a real generation gap in the way people are voting. You know, I mean, when I was growing up, you just voted however your parents voted and, and that was it, you know, and I think there is a 
a shift in that now with people are because a lot of it is about such foundational things like race and orientation and things like that, that this new generation thinks very differently about those things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Well, thank you for joining us. I would love to be in this class. It sounds like you're discussing really interesting things. Well, Morgan Griffith has been our representative now since 2010 and has faced a couple of challenges, but None of them have been serious. And and I get calls from people at the Washington Post and the New York Times being like, why do you keep electing this person? It's like, well, that's complicated. (laughs) Yeah. You know, the other thing we didn't talk about is the way that civics isn't taught as widely as it used to be. And I think that's a huge problem for us, too. People don't understand there are three branches of government. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and those are the things that my generation, we were taught all of that, you know, not that we retained it enough, but we were definitely taught it in a way that students aren't being having access to that in the same way they haven't in the past few years. Um, I think the generation between mine and this generation didn't have that. Yeah. It seems like it's returning a little bit, I hope. So I want to thank Silas House again for both coming to my class and letting me use the recording um, for the radio show this week. It was a fabulous conversation as you listened in. I really enjoyed hosting him in class. The students loved chatting with him. And thanks again, Trey and Kelly, for your wonderful questions. Um, If you missed any piece of this broadcast today, you can catch up anytime on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And guess what, y'all? This show is now available over in WISE on W-I-S-E-F-M WISE, which is wonderful. And also I hear that it's being broadcast all over Southwest Virginia right now. So again, the show is Red, White, and Confused. Check us out on Facebook. Check us out wherever you get podcasts. If you like the show, let me know. Feel free to leave a comment on Facebook and share it with your friends. It's been great. Thanks, y'all. Have a great day.